Welcome to the 21st episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant fact concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, overall, what we're seeing is what we predicted in the last show. We saw a drop in total cases as people engaged in greater social distancing, and then a spike after Labor Day weekend when beaches, barbecues, and large events were held. I worry that people still believe, even if only subconsciously, that this virus will somehow become a non-issue in the future if they just hope it will happen and wait long enough. And they are therefore shocked each time the number of cases and deaths rise. What's interesting in looking at the numbers is how varied the transmission rates and curves are by state at any given point in time, but also how consistent the pattern is among them overall. As an example, following the July 4th weekend, Arizona is one of the most impacted states in the nation. Then the next month, the number of cases fell by 72%, and the number of deaths declined by a third. The same pattern has been seen in Florida and Texas. Our nation continues to take more of what I think of as a stimulus response approach to the coronavirus than a strategic one. Cases rise, and people will become socially distant. Next, the numbers fall, and their guard goes down, leading to the next spike. The predictability is obvious and close to 100%. The quote, insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different response, is attributed to Albert Einstein. Although I've never found solid evidence that he said it, the evidence is clear that when it comes to this coronavirus, that is what is happening. On a different topic, we continue to see deaths highest among adults with multiple chronic diseases. Of interest, that same pattern was recently identified among kids and young adults. Among 121 deaths in people under the age of 21, most had one or more pre-existing medical conditions, such as asthma, heart disease, or obesity. Similar to adults, deaths were higher for Hispanic and Black individuals even though there are far more white American youths than black or Hispanic. Whether this racial imbalance has a biological component or is completely a reflection of socioeconomic issues, isn't yet clear. Finally, it's interesting to me how as various businesses reopen, fever checks are becoming so common. 
And yet the data says fever checks are of minimal value with this coronavirus, as opposed to the ones from the past, like SARS and MERS. Governor Cuomo of New York has called for checking diners' temperatures before they can be seated at indoor restaurants, as an example. Once again, the epidemiology and biology of this pandemic is being ignored. According to a paper published in JAMA Internal Medicine, asymptomatic people with COVID-19, including those without fever, shed as much virus from their nose, throat, and lungs as those with symptoms, and they are equally likely to spread the disease. As such, fever checks provide more psychological comfort to people than actual medical benefit. When I put all the pieces of COVID-19 together, I can't figure out what our nation is trying to do strategically. When you look at countries like New Zealand, their strategy is clear. Do everything possible to eliminate the virus. Look at Sweden, and their strategy is different but equally clear, preserve the economy and give people the freedom to decide how much risk they personally want to take. Once again, people will have different opinions about each of these approaches, and one of the benefits of either offset the risks, but in each case, the nation's strategic plan is clear and known to everyone. When it comes to the U.S., no one seems to know our strategy. It's vague. It's often contradictory one week to the next. The truth is we can't maximally reduce transmission without imposing far stricter restrictions on people than they seem willing to do. And as such, we try to do a little of both without success. And as a result, we are paying a high price both medically and economically as a nation, month after month, we continue to do the same things and expect a different result. Not only is this foolish, but it also appears unlikely to change in the future. Robbie, what about in other countries? How are they doing now? Jeremy, quite a number of countries are now seeing the number of cases and deaths rising very fast, even nations that have been very successful in the past. Israel became the first developed country to impose a second nationwide lockdown, including limiting people from traveling more than a third of a mile from their homes for non-essential activities. And the fact they did so during the Jewish High Holy Days speaks to the depth of concern of government officials. Despite having one of the world's best medical care systems, officials in Israel are worried that the number of new cases combined with the upcoming flu season will overwhelm the nation's inpatient capacity. Similarly, Great Britain has reimposed strict limits on the number of people who can gather in one place, and Spain, France, Italy, and Germany have seen their rates of transmission rising steadily, and each of these nations is imposing added restrictions on their citizens. Last week, we talked about the CDC recommending asymptomatic people not be tested and the blowback it generated. What's happened? In a major reversal, 
the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, now is urging asymptomatic people exposed to the virus to be tested. The recommendation not to test made little medical sense, given that these are exactly the people most at risk for spreading the infection, since they don't realize they have it, and therefore what they are doing. Tomorrow, I'll be posting a Forbes article on COVID statistics that are true, but misleading and dangerous. Testing, the number of tests we do, is one of them. The reason isn't that tests don't have a huge theoretical value, but that the current four to seven day delay in getting the results makes them almost useless. It's like you're receiving a hurricane alert three days after the storm and the damage is done. Epidemiologic research shows that people are at least or even more contagious before they have symptoms than afterwards, and that they will have on average 36 contacts during that period. What our nation needs is easy access to testing with turnaround in no more than 24 hours, and we are a long way from that goal. Whether the previous CDC guidelines were based on that reality or motivated by politics remains unknown. Speaking about the government, where are we on the passage of a new stimulus bill? On coronavirus, the truth, you and I have been very accurate at predicting the future when it comes to the biology and consequences of this coronavirus. But relative to congressional passage of this legislation, I missed the mark by a wide margin. It wasn't the medical or economic need to enact this legislation that I got wrong, but instead the magnitude of the partisan logjam between the House and the Senate. The latest development was the Senate's failure to pass a slimmed-down version of the House bill, which included a $300 a week added unemployment benefit as opposed to the House's $600 a week. It now appears that nothing will pass, at least until after the November election, particularly given the tragic death of Justice Ginsburg and the battle over her replacement that is coming. And of course, both sides will continue to blame the other for all of the dysfunction that will occur in our nation. Those favoring a 2 to $3 trillion stimulus bill point to the number of small businesses facing growing problems and households struggling to get by. Those who don't favor a bill of that magnitude point to the decline in recent unemployment, particularly in the manufacturing and service sectors. What's clear is that the margin of error when it comes to the U.S. economy is narrow and danger lurks on all sides. Moreover, there's a philosophic chasm between those who see the safest path to keeping the U.S. economy moving forward to be through added government and consumer spending, while others see it happening through the Federal Reserve, providing dollars and guarantees to businesses 
for added investment. As the pandemic persists, what's the status of uh, vaccine development? Jeremy, this is a multiple trillion dollar question. I've had the chance to speak with hundreds of business leaders over the past several weeks, and I believe there's a fundamental misunderstanding about these vaccines. People assume that a vaccine will eliminate the virus. And although it's theoretically possible, most likely that won't be the case. Some vaccines, like the one against measles, are 99% effective in protecting people. Other vaccines, like the one against the flu, are more in the 50 to 60% range. If every American were vaccinated against measles, we would not have another case in the United States, except one brought into the country by a global traveler. That's not true for the flu. What the flu vaccine does is help protect people so that fewer individuals get the disease and those who do have milder and less dangerous cases. Influenza does not disappear each spring because of the vaccine. It disappears because the virus is heat sensitive and the arrival of the warmer weather makes the virus disappear until the next December. The current coronavirus, the one that produces COVID-19, isn't heat sensitive, and it will persist as long as there are individuals who are susceptible. And susceptibility is unclear. We don't yet know how long the immunity, either from a vaccine or from having the disease, will last. As we said in our previous show, there is data that says it will stay for a minimum of four months, or at least the antibodies will stay across that time. But of course, since the pandemic has only been here for six months, we can't say what's going to happen a year or a year and a half or two years after people are infected, or similarly, after they have a vaccine that has yet to be FDA tested and approved. When enough people develop effective antibodies, either from the vaccine or having recovered from the disease itself, the number of cases will decline, even if social distancing is eliminated. But that won't make the virus disappear. And potentially, the virus could mutate and start the cycle again, as happened in the Spanish flu. We simply can't predict at this point. And of course, even when there's a vaccine, the drug company that makes it will need to manufacture tens of millions or hundreds of millions of doses, and the public will need to be willing to be the first ones to take the shots. And neither of these is certain. As a result, Anthony Fauci said that he did not expect that we would have everything in place to reach this level of protection until the end of 2021. Interestingly, he added that the vaccine was not definitive, but that masks were. And there's another factor few companies are acknowledging. 
the first vaccine to the market may not be the most effective, given that none of these vaccines are likely to be 100%. And we know that very few people want to get multiple vaccinations as each new vaccine receives FDA approval. As such, going slower might prove in the long run the safest and best path, even if no one is talking about that possibility now. How will we know if a vaccine is effective? In phase three testing, a moderately large population of people are randomly divided into two groups. One is given the actual vaccine and the other a placebo. And then you wait for the placebo group to develop infections and compare the number in those who receive the placebo against the number in an equally sized population that received the true vaccine. If the frequency of infection is statistically less for those who receive the actual vaccine than it is said to work. But to achieve statistical differentiation, what's needed is enough people in each group. So the probability that the vaccinated group's numbers being less is a result of the vaccine and not by chance can be proven. The best estimate is that this will require 15,000 people to be in each of the two study cohorts in order to allow there to be 150 cases, 1% of participants, to happen in the placebo group while there are fewer than 75 cases in the group that received the actual vaccine. And for there to be 150 people infected in the placebo group, that could take months to happen, which is why the actual time frame is likely to be much slower than the hypothetical one that drug companies and elected officials are currently promising. What about vaccine willingness? Here too, there are issues. According to a CBS poll, only Two in 10 Americans would decide to get a free coronavirus vaccine if it were made available this year. That's even lower than the numbers we discussed in the last show based on the survey we had done through the subscribers to my monthly musings. In the CBS poll, almost 60% of respondents said they would wait until many other people had been vaccinated and obtained immunity without complications. And 21% said they would never get one. If these numbers hold up, it would mean the vaccine can't be just 50% effective as the FDA has set as the threshold for approval, but it would need to be at least 80% if we want to diminish the risk sufficiently for Americans from COVID-19 in order to lift the current restrictions. I keep hearing more about people who are suffering long-term damage from the virus. I don't know anyone personally who has. It sounds like it's pretty rare. 
Um, what data is there on non-lethal long-term damage from the virus? How common is it and what are people experiencing? Jeremy, the virus remains a medical mystery since it behaves so differently than the other ones we've encountered. Initially, doctors thought of it as simply a respiratory infection, similar to the other coronaviruses, impacting the nose, the throat, and the lung. Now there's evidence that it affects a huge number of organs, including the blood vessels and nerves that exist throughout our bodies. Researchers are finding longer-term impacts than anticipated. In a recent paper, almost half of patients studied reported lingering fatigue, similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, months after they recover. Around 10% of people, particularly those with the more severe cases of pneumonia, have long-term scarring in their lung. We talked in the last show about the myocarditis that's being identified in people and the risk that it causes for athletes. And of course, the loss of smell and taste is a unique finding from this coronavirus, and it persists for months in many individuals, although most of them ultimately regain their senses. Early in this podcast, we said it would be two years before we fully understood the pathophysiology of this viral disease. And unfortunately, that prediction is proving accurate. We're seeing major spikes on uh, college campuses. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, as you know, demographers separate the population into generations. Gen Z are the individuals currently in college now and seemingly willing to take the risks associated with COVID-19. And yet that's only part of the story. Gen Z are those individuals born between 1997 and 2012. As such, they range in age from eight to 23. Overall, they're described as well-behaved, abstemious, and risk-adverse. As such, the college current students may be more similar to the tail end of the previous generation in their risk willingness rather than the overall Gen Z cohort. According to a recently released Harris poll of Gen Z individuals, when it comes to the coronavirus, they are willing to make sacrifices. Specifically, 79% were willing to consistently wear masks. 77% would stay home if sick. 61% would engage in frequent hand washing. And 58% maintain six-foot distancing as an approach to reduce spread. Today, I saw an interesting study from students on college campuses, and that 51% of them regret going back to school, finding the academic experience much less satisfying, fulfilling, 
and educational in itself compared to what they expected, the social restrictions, the class restrictions, the interaction with friends and other students is making colleges become less desirable for this Gen Z population than at any time in the past. It's very clear that we're going to see a major shift in how education is provided at all levels, but particularly at the college level where that experience that many of us cherish from the past may remain a distant memory. Jeremy, there obviously is a massive range in people's psychological response to this virus. Some individuals see people who don't wear masks as criminal, and others have a similar view of those who do. You know, the people of Iowa well, you also work with individuals in many other states. How do you interpret this difference in people's perspective? I personally am very close with people on both sides of that and everywhere in between. Um, I think a lot of the difference of beliefs is due to three things. One, the division we are seeing in the country as a whole, which is you know arguably the worst it's been since the mid to late 1800s. That means pre-Civil War, Civil War, and Reconstruction era. Um, the second being the politicization of the virus with both sides largely reporting on what is convenient to their side and kind of furthers their narrative. The third being, you know, how much information from the WHO and CDC has changed throughout the course of the virus, causing many to feel they cannot fully trust them for various reasons. And, you know, some of this is just them understanding the virus and learning more. People are so entrenched in their political camps right now. And many of them live in these, you know, social media echo chambers where they only hear news and opinions from those who already largely agree with them, kind of further entrenching them in their current beliefs. I think, you know, the huge levels of division and anger on either side of the issue is uh, due to the division we are seeing in the country as a whole right now. Jeremy, along those lines, there's a coalition of businesses and restaurants in New York City critical of the mayor for his unwillingness to more rapidly ease social distancing in the Big Apple. They worry the city won't be able to recover in the future as businesses have moved out or disappeared completely. I know that many people who left New York have returned to Iowa. What's it like for them back where they grew up? Do you believe they'll leave again? You know, Robbie, when I was in college at the University of Iowa, many of my friends who grew up in Iowa and attended college with me uh, couldn't wait to graduate and move to a big city like Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, or New York. Um, a lot of the people I know that live in big cities now are leaving with no intention of ever going back. I mean, they're moving to places like Texas or even back to Iowa. Uh, you know, many of these big cities have very heavy restrictions due to coronavirus and their economies are suffering. Uh, crime is increasing, and it is much more difficult to socially distance in a large city. I mean, and if all the restaurants and nightlife and cultural events are closed off, like, honestly, you know, what reason is there to live in a big city? 
many people are finding they enjoy more outdoor activities than they thought, like backpacking or camping. You know, and my favorite thing about a place like Iowa is the people. There's that stereotype about, you know, how nice and hardworking people in Iowa are. And it's largely true. Uh, The cost of living here is significantly cheaper than it is in a big city. Less pollution, less crowded, uh, much easier access to the excellent outdoor activities. Uh, And it's funny, like my last night, my dad and I actually had a conversation about an article he read about Zoom towns. It's kind of a play on the old boom towns that sprang up during the gold rush. Um, these places are amazing and in more remote areas where people can live and still Zoom into work and work remotely. I think with the country realizing that many jobs can be done remotely and function just fine, you know, this is a major cultural and economic shift. I think many employees for some of these companies that are based in big cities will be able to choose wherever they want to live. And much of that will be in less populated areas. You know, and again, I could be biased because I do prefer rural and small town life and have never really had any desire to live in a big city. But I feel like it'll be a long time before major cities become a desirable place to live again. And I actually wonder about, you know, long-term economic and tax ramifications uh, of this flight of upper middle class people from these major cities. Robbie, a listener wrote in and said, is there any chance this virus will be here forever? What is your response? Jeremy, as we said earlier, it might be here forever. And the old normal may never return. Like this listener, that is a possible reality that we face as a nation with more and more people fearing the probability that it will happen. As a result, people are making what I will call compromises, decisions they might not have thought they would make in the past, but accepting the reality that the virus could be here for a long, long time, feeling a necessity to return towards a more normal life. As you know, you're a big sports fan and you live in Iowa, the Big Ten will now play football. The decision to do so wasn't based on any new science. It was based on a growing frustration among players, parents, fans, communities, and concern. What would happen in the future? if all of the parts of our normal life were eliminated. We can debate whether the presidents should have reached that conclusion. But even if we disagree, I believe what's important and what is consistently missed are people agreeing about the facts. Specifically, I believe that people need to state the likely consequences of a decision before it was made, and then they can offer their conclusion and their preference between what will be two sets of risks. I would have liked the league to tell 
the nation that many players will become infected if they resume training and games. They should have told people that most likely one or a couple of teams will have to cancel games when multiple players become sick. And that among the 10 schools, a few students will have long-term harm, including to their hearts. Then when these things happen, such as the 42 University of Wisconsin players and staff who came down with the virus the day after the announcement was made, no one will be surprised. They'll understand the basis of the decision and that it's being made in the context of understanding and accepting the reality of the risks that exists. The danger to college athletes and their classmates, of course, is probabilistic. It's not certain, but it is clear that there will be harm that comes out of the choice that was made. And not acknowledging it leads people to assume that it won't happen. Before making a final decision, the school presidents needed to be open and transparent about the risks. What they then decided would be up to them. That is the job they have to make that hard final decision, but it should be made in a common context shared by all of us. Football with its injuries and concussions is a dangerous sport. Accepting this coronavirus risks in that context may be totally reasonable. Reasonable minds can disagree about what to do given these facts, but they should be able to achieve consensus on the existence of each. That process of clearly communicating the facts before making the value judgment is what I believe is needed more broadly during this pandemic, and the longer it goes on, the more vital that will be. Open schools and more people will be infected. Keep them closed and students will have academic gaps and psychological problems. Restrict businesses and restaurants and the business owners and their families will struggle and their workers will be harmed as a consequence. Open them up and the number of cases will increase. How much risk is worth taking, we can disagree on, but we shouldn't move forward pretending that what is most likely to happen won't occur, it will. Robbie, a lot of people are really struggling with their mental health uh, from working from home so much, less social interaction with friends, just kind of uncertainty about the world in general. And I want to ask you this, not necessarily as a medical professional, but as a friend, you know, what hobbies and activities are you doing in your personal life to kind of help you stay mentally healthy and happy? Early in the pandemic, it was clear that the things that I've done in the past, the travel that I've done from the, for my work, the travel that I've done for my personal enjoyment would not be possible, and that we would be staying home quite a bit more than in the past. And we made a decision to obtain a dog, a beautiful Samoyed puppy. And many of the activities that we've done during this pandemic have focused around the opportunities to take the dog to outdoor 
places. We've hiked into areas of the mountains that we might not have gone to. I continue to run five miles every day along the beach area where I live. We bought paddle boards and the dog sits on the back and we're able to be out on the water far away from people. And I particularly enjoyed the opportunity to have outdoor dining. And I'm hoping that the many outdoor opportunities that you actually see in other parts of the world, particularly Europe, that we're now seeing in the United States today with the pandemic and the closure of indoor dining will persist into the future. It's a lot of fun to be eating outside. My work has shifted away from speaking in person and consulting in person to doing a lot more on Zoom. I was able to complete my next book on the impact of the physician culture on both doctors and patients. I think it's important psychologically to embrace the things that are possible now rather than focus on the ones that were not there before. I know that for many Americans, their life is really constrained because they're living in places that they can't get away from and having to travel every day to work in public transportation. But for those of us who can, we should be grateful for what we have and we should enjoy, I believe, the opportunity to spend more and more time outside. Exercise is a tremendous way to improve psychological health. It was true before the pandemic. It's even more true now. What about you, Jeremy? What are the things that you've done to maintain your psychological health and well-being during the coronavirus pandemic? Robbie, I would agree with you about the importance of dogs for mental health. I have a, a five-year-old border collie who is insanely high energy and a one-year-old St. Bernard who loves to sleep and eat. Um, interacting with them has definitely been a godsend for my mental health. And, you know, I've been going for walks with them more, playing with them more than I probably normally would. Um, I used to play a lot of board games and video games with my friends and family. And obviously, you know, it's impossible to do that in person now. Um, so we've been doing a lot of that over uh, the internet, doing a lot of online board games, online video games. In fact, I would say like my dad and I got really into this uh, Civil War history uh, game online. And we've probably been, I've been probably playing that with him enough that we've been interacting more than we did before the pandemic. So that's pretty cool. And that being said, too, you know, I've done a lot more of the outdoor activities, like I've gone shooting with my friends more often, been going a lot more hikes and things like that. So and I've also been reading more books than I have before. And, and those things, I think, have really been what helped me with my mental health throughout all of this. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.